Uh, thank you all for sharing. Um, now we're going to move on to uh, our next mantra in the series. And uh, to get into it, I want to go to a couple places in the Gospels where Jesus does a couple of things. And it's specifically putting these two things side by side that raises some questions for me. So I'm going to show you these two passages in the Gospels, and then we're going to work it out a little bit. First of all, we're going to go here to John chapter 2. Uh, and I'll explain it as I, as I read through it. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Let's pause there. So Passover is a high holy day for the Jewish people, and Jerusalem is where all the high holy days happen there at the temple. So this means that Jewish people are gathering into Jerusalem from all over the ancient world. For some of them, this is a very long journey, and it's an act of faithfulness for them to show up. Now, when they show up at the temple, there's a couple of things that need to happen. One is they need to offer sacrifices. This is part of how they experience uh, worship and reconciliation with God. And the sacrifices are typically animal sacrifices. And the requirement is that the animal that you sacrifice be completely unblemished. Well, here's the thing. If you're going to travel hundreds of miles from your home to Jerusalem for this high holy day, you might have left home with an unblemished animal, but by the time you get to Jerusalem, it may not be unblemished, right? As a metaphor, some of you have gone on road trips with your kids, and you know that by the time you got to Disney World, they were not unblemished in the back of the minivan because of what they did to one another, right? Imagine walking hundreds of miles by feet. Your animal may not show up in the same condition that it left the home in. So for these people, it became more efficient to bring their cash rather than their animals, and then at the temple, they could procure a sacrificial animal that they could offer, okay? So that's going on. And then the other issue here is that because these people are coming in from all over the ancient world, they bring with them all different kinds of currency. So imagine um, that, the, you know, it's not just like, like one form of hard cash or currency that they're bringing, but many. And these currencies have wild fluctuation rates. So if anybody's into crypto and you've like ridden the roller coaster of Bitcoin or Dogecoin and you've just seen like the crazy fluctuations, imagine something honestly not far off from that in the way that these currency values fluctuate. So you're the temple and you've got a problem because you've got currencies coming in from all over and if you accept all these different currencies and you don't get the exchange rates right, well, you've kind of like caused yourself a problem financially on the, on the accounting, right? So the temple decided that whether purchasing animals or paying the temple tax, that, uh, that they're only going to accept one form of currency, which is, if you care, the Phoenician drachma. And so uh, if you come into Israel or into Jerusalem and you don't have Phoenician drachmas on you, you're going to bring your currency to the table and they're going to make an exchange so that you can participate in the life of the temple. So far, so good. Except, can you just sense how ripe the situation is for exploitation? Right? So people are coming in from all over and they're there to enact some... Uh, work of faithfulness. They're there to offer their worship. They're there to experience a sense of peace and reconciliation with God. But between them and those acts of faithfulness, this economic system has been inserted. And, and, it, and it's a place of great power, and it has a monopoly on these people's actions. And so you can just imagine the temptation to inflate the rates and and uh, like bump up the costs on everything so that people could enrich themselves, the people who insert themselves into the middle of the system between Jewish people who are coming to enact their faithfulness and the God that they're trying to worship. You feel that? Okay, so we have a, we have a problem here, and let's see how Jesus responds. Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. 
He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Jesus doesn't have a problem with a bookstore and a church necessarily. He has a problem with anything that exploits people, especially when they're using God to do it. And, and you, you, like, you can sense the passion in this, the fiery anger in this, right? I mean, this is, a, this is a prophet who shows up and sees something that offends him and offends God, and he's gonna make a scene about it to do something on behalf of the people who are being exploited by the system, cool? Let's move on to the next text, and let me see if you can feel the tension that I feel when I read this next text alongside the first one. This is Matthew chapter eight. Jesus had entered Capernaum and a centurion came to him asking for help. Now a centurion is a, a leader of Roman soldiers. And the Roman Empire is there in this part of the world oppressing the Israelite people. The Roman Empire has stretched itself across the ancient world. Everywhere it goes, it shows up with violence and military power. And they use that violence and that military power to proclaim a kind of uh, false peace. Many have pointed out like, that, that when the Roman Empire proclaimed peace, like the Pax Romana, their version of peace was created by saying, if you disagree with us, we will torture you and kill you. So everybody's either going to agree with us or die. Like that was their method of procuring peace in the ancient world. And the Israelites, as much as anybody else under the boot of the Roman Empire, knew that that's the kind of power that they were being held under. And this centurion, he's not just a participant in that military expansion. He's one of the leaders of it. A centurion means that he's got a bunch of troops underneath him who report up to him. So Jesus bumps into a person who is literally enacting the oppression of his people. And then we see this. Uh, Lord, the centurion says, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes, and that one, come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And then Jesus heard this, and he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Is anybody a little bit uncomfortable? In the first story, he bumps into a system of exploitation and oppression, and he rails against it. In the second story, he bumps into one of the people who is perpetrating that exploitation of his people, and he holds him up as a sign of faith, and he celebrates him. Well, it, it almost can feel like Jesus is running two completely contrary scripts here, like two completely different programs, but I don't think he is, and I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna kind of work this out with you. I, I, I kind of enjoy the pained expressions on faces that I'm seeing right now. <laughs> yeah, this is what the scriptures are meant to do sometimes. They're meant to raise questions and provoke us, and that's what it's been doing to me. Now, I actually think that Jesus is not running two different scripts. I don't think he's operating on two different programs. I, I think we actually see a consistent thread woven into his life that's at work in both of these. And here's where the thread starts. It starts in a place uh, at the beginning of the book of Genesis, chapter one, verses 26 and 27. This is uh, sort of at the end of the creation hymn of Genesis chapter one, this poem that tells the story of God uh, sorting and sifting the raw materials of creation and making land and water and sky and filling those things with life. And then uh, sort of at the apex of the story, we read that God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. 
So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Uh, I think Jesus knows that every human being he's looking at is actually a bearer of sacred worth and divine image. And the every is the most important thing in what I just said. Um, it turns out that in the ancient world, it's not a new idea that people could bear the image of God. And by the way, I know this is the review part of the mantra sermon, if you've heard this before. Um, but in the ancient world, it's not a new idea that human beings could bear the image of God. We don't need Genesis 1, 26 and 27 to get that idea. We don't need Revelation to get that idea. We don't need God doing anything dramatic to help human beings get the idea that human beings could bear the image of God because we have a rampant list of texts and artifacts from the ancient Near Eastern world where human beings already clearly believed that human beings could bear the image of God. Let me give you an example. Anybody remember uh, this name right here, King Tut? Yeah, I remember in like middle school, our family always got National Geographic and one of the most compelling covers of National Geographic was the one with that mask, like the, the tomb mask of the Pharaoh, King Tut, right? Well, his full name is Tutankhamun or Tutankhamun and it literally translates the living image of the god Amun. Right there in Egypt, they believe a human being could bear the image of God. I'll tell you what's distinctive about Genesis 1, and 27. It's not the idea that a human being could bear the image of God. It's specifically the idea that every human being bears the image of God. Because it turns out anywhere else in the ancient world where we see image of God language with humans, it's always only the people on top. It's the king or the queen or the pharaoh or the priest or the wealthy or the powerful that bear the image of God everywhere else that you read about it in the ancient world. And then Genesis 1, 26 and 27 comes along and it has the audacity to suggest that every human being bears the image of God. This is uh, what one scholar named Nahum Sarna, he's a Jewish commentator, he, he calls it the democratization of the image of God, given away to everyone, named for every human being. So here's the thing. If you're really good at sometimes seeing the sacred worth in other people, if, if you recognize the dignity in some people, we, we've completely missed the point of this. The only way we lay hold of this is when we see it in every person, which is why our mantra, and I'll put it on the screen here for you, the mantra is everyone an icon. Everyone an icon. Every human being a carrier of the sacred image. Every human being a living, breathing, walking icon of God in the world. Uh, so let's kind of work that out. It starts... Um, with you, like you are a bearer of the sacred image. You. Not just the people who have their act together more than you. Not just the people who have lived more moral lives than you. Not just the people who have been more affirmed than you. Not just the people who have been celebrated more than you, but like you, you. You walk around every day as a little living, breathing bearer of sacred worth and divine image. And every time I, like, I meditate on this, I think about it, I don't know about you, I actually feel like my, my shoulders kind of coming back a little bit. I feel my head rising up a little bit. It ought to actually do that to you. Like, the, like you, we, we walk around with this unassailable dignity and worth. This is a word about you. You are not a project. You're not a problem to be solved. You're, you're not fundamentally something that first and foremost needs fixed. You are fundamentally first and foremost a gift to this world 
This is a big part of how our church tries to think about every person who walks in our door, is that these are not projects walking in there, and these are not problems to be fixed, that you being here is a gift, because we are a community that wants to know God, and there's something unique about you that gets us a little bit closer to knowing God. This is also a word about uh, everybody else, right? It needs to become a way of seeing one another, a way of seeing uh, our neighbors and our family members, It needs to be a way of seeing uh, those kids that you are raising that are driving you bonkers, right? It needs to be a way of seeing your spouse on their worst day. All right, we we can all go home now. Uh, It needs to, how about this one? It needs to be a way of seeing your aging parents. Yeah, there's a lot of burdens that come with like showing up for parents in those seasons, right? Bearers of the sacred image. A way of seeing that coworker that just drives you bonkers. A way of seeing um, your neighbors that you do not understand. A way of seeing your enemies. Every single person a bearer of the sacred image. Now, one of the ways that we get this wrong, that we miss this, is with the phenomenon that you might call othering. And by othering, I simply mean this way that we end up sort of grouping some people who are like us in some way and finding it easy to see their dignity and their fullness and to appreciate all those things about them. And then some category or some division of some sort that puts other people on the other side of a line that others them, and then we don't do that with them, right? So like we might be othering people, if it's hard for us to imagine that there's a story behind them that might help explain who they are and what they do. We might be othering them, right? We are quick to imagine the nuance and the complexity and the three-dimensionality of the people that we don't other, the people that we sort of feel like we're on the same team with, and we are quick to dismiss those possibilities of depth and complexity and story and narrative in other people, in other groups, right? We are quick to assign the best possible motives to the people that we feel aligned with or kindred with, and we are quick to assign the worst possible motives to be deeply suspicious of what's driving people that we have put on the other side of some kind of line that others. And here's the thing, this isn't just impolite or like bad manners or a little bit mean. If you go through the history of the human race and you look for the worst atrocities that we have ever committed, if you look for the ways that we are capable of committing acts of desecration against bearers of the image of God, through violence, through, th- through the worst imaginable human things that we have ever done, whether it's like the Holocaust or other, other perhaps more subtle but equally insidious things that have happened in history, those things almost always begin with subtle othering and dehumanizing. Uh, if you go through the, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem called Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem forces you to walk through a chronology from the the earliest hints that violence was coming for the Jewish people all the way to the worst atrocities of the Holocaust. And what you see long before any acts of overt violence is artwork that dehumanizes Jewish people, that, that, that somehow suggests that they are less human than the rest of us. And it's those little moves of dehumanizing and othering that began to lay a groundwork that made the worst possible things possible. Othering is, is uh, profoundly harmful for anybody who's trying to live out everyone an icon. We end up building systems that other people. We end up building a whole world that uses labels, traits, and categories to, 
make some people eligible for the best that we have to author while we give the worst to somebody else. And for a church that preaches everyone an icon, we want to take that really seriously. This, by the way, is like if you've been around for a little while, you know that we as a community, are, are, we try to be students of things like racial justice. It's not because we're trying to be progressive. I don't know about you, I have just no interest in being like progressive or conservative. I, like, it's not because we're trying to sneak in some kind of partisan agenda here or pick some side in a culture war fight. It's because we preach everyone an icon and we see Jesus living out everyone an icon. And it seems if you really believe everyone an icon, then you're gonna wanna understand the, the systems and the histories that have built a world that doesn't reflect that, yeah. right? Same goes um, for everything from like misogyny and women's experiences in the world to the experiences of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. These are not us trying to wave some big flag of culture war and picking one side. This is us trying to live for everyone an icon and go bravely wherever it takes us. Um, so far, that's pretty much how I've always preached everyone an icon. So that was the review portion. And then this year as I return to these mantras, I've been trying to ask myself, like, what have we not said about these before that we need to say? Or have we learned anything as a church community about trying to apply these mantras that we could fold in? And as I thought about everyone an icon, it, it strikes me there's actually an elephant in the room around this mantra. And I want to name the elephant. You guys ready for that? Yeah? Oh, you guys are wonderful. I love you. Yeah, um, let me get to it. So to get to this elephant in the room, let me start by reading uh, an email, uh, a wonderful, beautiful email that I got from an educator, a teacher in our church. Uh, I received this this spring, um, and this will begin to lay the groundwork for the elephant that I want to talk about. This teacher wrote, this week was emotionally the hardest I have ever had teaching. Last Friday, a six-year-old kindergarten student of mine was murdered. The suspect is a former student of mine as well. The entire school is grieving. Students who live in that apartment complex, who helped look for the victim when they thought she was just missing, ended up seeing things no kids or adults should ever see. They saw police cars, yellow tape, a coroner van, a body bag, and a fellow kid that they knew get put in handcuffs. While talking with several people over the course of the week, the one thing I repeatedly heard was how the victim's mom's life would be changed by all of this. And after listening, I would mention how I also grieved for the suspect's mother and brother because their lives would also never be the same. And I talked about how hard it would be to love your son knowing what they had done and also how it would destroy the life of the brother of the accused killer. By the way, that brother is currently a student of mine. When I would say these things, they were met with confusion and comments like, come on, if she had just done X, Y, or Z, this wouldn't have happened. And I would listen to their pain and I would quietly pray for the suspect's family. Today, during one of my kindergarten classes, a boy raised his hand, and when I called on him, this is the conversation we had. The boy, teacher, Gracie's in heaven now. Me, yeah, she's in heaven with Jesus. I miss Gracie. The class, we miss her too. She was our friend. Boy number two, Gracie's in heaven with Jesus, and Jesus loves everyone. Well, except everyone except bad people. Me, you're right, Jesus loves everyone. He even loves the bad people even though they might make his heart sad. Boy number two, thinking for a second. Yeah, Jesus loves everyone, and Gracie is there in heaven with him. Me, yep, and I bet she is so happy. And then this teacher goes on to write in the email, everyone an icon, even the bad people. I had no idea how this mantra would shape me, and truth be told, I wish it hadn't been such a hard mantra to live. I truly believe that it saved me. 
saved me from more pain, more hardness, and even more emotional trauma. It allowed me to more readily see Christ in others and made it easier for me to forgive, which I will continue to be grateful for. I don't always get this right or remember it as quickly as I should. However, I'm going to keep trying. That was a heavy, beautiful letter, right? Um, here's why I share that letter, because I think it, it distills uh, an elephant in the room or a, or a tension that we feel when we try to really live out everyone in Icon bravely. And I can kind of describe the tension in these two sort of pushes that I feel from members of our own church community. And by the way, these are good pushes. I like, these are, these are good pushes. The first push that I get is, Jay, we, we got to do more. We got to be braver and louder and more committed to justice. We, we've got to say more. We've got to learn more. We've got to take more steps to disrupt the status quo that keeps marginalizing people, especially when churches have had such a part in marginalizing people and reinforcing some of that status quo. We've got to do more. And we can't be afraid of hurting people's feelings. And we, we, we've got to step on some toes and let people know if they're part of the problem. We've got to talk about it. So that's a push that I get. And I think it is good and holy and true. And I think it's deeply rooted in the way that Jesus lived his life. And then here's the other push I get. Or the other, it's, more, it's, it's less of a push and more of a question that I get. Um, Jay, I love how we talk about everyone in Icon. I love how it pushes us into conversations around justice and things that are not just in the world. But I gotta be honest, sometimes I feel like somebody like me is inherently sort of suspect in those conversations because of my own social location or because of the color of my skin or because of my general political outlook on the world. And it almost feels like in trying to make sure that we don't other some people, we're starting to other other people. That's the elephant in the room that I just want to talk about for a minute. I see some nods. Is this a tension that you felt? Yeah, it's a, it's a very real tension, and I think we should talk about it. Um, let me affirm again, like, I do think we need to get braver and braver and, and say more and more about things that are not just in the world. I think versions of American Christianity got really good about, at saying nothing. And we became complicit in a status quo that is fundamentally unjust. And I think it does not honor God to do that. And I think Jesus is very, very clearly committed to dealing with injustice in the world. And so, like, I affirm the holiness in that. And at the same time, it's just objectively true that some of the conversations around justice that are happening in the world some of the spaces that you can enter into that are really lit up and concerned about rectifying some wrongs, spaces that are trying to tell the truth about oppression, it is objectively true. Some of those spaces and some of the things being said in those spaces and some of the voices that are shaping some of those spaces seem to have a whole new set of prejudices. That's true. Uh, I find myself in a lot of those. I, I go to conferences, I'm on Zoom calls, I'm in meetings. And a big part of my learning curve in the last few years has been to put myself in places where it's not just a bunch of white dudes talking about stuff. That's an important thing for me to do. Um, it's right for me to do that. Sometimes in those spaces, it's objectively true that I'm told that the color of my skin and my gender make me a liability in the room or make me untrustworthy in the room. I've been on Zoom calls where really kind of renowned and um, highly platformed Christian leaders who are not white men have literally just said to me on the Zoom call, like, I don't know you, but you're a white man, and I don't trust white men. 
And that's been really confusing for me and, and hard for me to uh, receive that. So yeah, if you feel like some of these spaces are a little confusing and hard to navigate right now, you're not wrong. They're a little confusing. They're a little bit hard to navigate right now. Side note, when that happens, by the way, like when, for example, in, in this case, a woman of color says that to me, I do think the right impulse for me, I think the first move for me that Jesus is teaching me is to, to set aside my defensiveness and get curious about like, what life experiences might have shaped that reaction in her. I actually think that's the right move for me to make. I think that's the appropriate move. But then I can step back and look at the space and be like, yeah, these are complicated spaces. Um, big fancy word for you, or actually it's two words, uh, that philosophers will use to describe some of the challenges we're facing in the kind of postmodern era. They call it a performative contradiction. And what they mean by a performative contradiction is that when you have a, a worldview or an ethic uh, and, and you, you enact it and you articulate it, that in enacting it or articulating it, it begins to contradict itself. So the performative part is to say like, I'm enacting it or I'm articulating it, right? And the contradiction is to say that some of these ideas sort of cannibalize themselves, right? Uh, I'm gonna go a little further on, on the academic stuff and then we'll come back to like real life. But here's another example of a performative contradiction. In postmodern spaces, if people say there's absolutely no universal truth, that's a performative contradiction because they're saying it as a universal truth, right? And I'm not even making fun of that. That's just, that's, this language in the, in the academy comes from observing that conundrum about postmodern thinking, that it sort of cannibalizes itself, right? That, that, that the, somebody saying that is standing on a limb of a tree that they're cutting off by saying it, right? Makes sense? And something similar is happening in some of these spaces where we try to talk about everyone an icon, right? Another way of saying it is to say that I think in some spaces we are trying to solve a problem at the very level of thinking that created it. So if the problem in the first place has to do with the fact that we have divided humanity and we've created categories based on geography or gender or skin color or anything else, if the problem is that we've created categories that we feel then justify us to, to diminish or oppress or marginalize or deprive or to dismiss people who fit inside those categories, if, if that's one of the problems that is at work in the world and has been for as long as we can remember, we probably can't solve that problem by creating new categories of people who we find inherently suspect because of the skin color or their gender or their social location, right? And if, if you felt that, there is a little bit of like frustration when you bump into that because it seems like we can't go anywhere together if that's what we are doing, right? Um, again, this is me just airing out the elephant in the room. I'm not even like making a point really right now. I'm just, I'm just like naming this tension that I think is felt and it's real and it's true. When I, when I feel that tension, when I look at how messy and complicated it is to actually do the work of justice, to actually move forward, because like if, if because of the tension I just named, if because of that tension we just shy away from this, we back off from it, we decide it's too messy for us to get into it, what a failure, right? Like did we think it was gonna be easy to fix this stuff? No, we are up against generations of deeply entrenched oppression. We are up against a lot. If we thought it was gonna be easy and then we bump into some discomfort and we back off because of that, like, well, we're not gonna get anywhere, right? So like, I don't think we should back off because of these challenges, but the challenges are very real. And to me, what they remind me of is that like, we don't actually get to do the work of healing and justice in the world. 
unless we submit ourselves to a, to a process of growing up and evolving and expanding, like we actually have to like move up in consciousness if we're gonna do this work in a way that doesn't just repeat the harms that we are trying to address. We actually have to allow ourselves to be transformed in the process. That's what I believe through and through. Like the, we're not gonna fix this just by swapping out one perspective for another and staying at the level of consciousness that we were at when we created the problem in the first place. Like something more transformative has to happen for us to do this work. And when you, when you bump into these sort of contradictions, when you, when you bump into these incoherencies in the conversation, it suggests to me that we need to do some evolving, some real growing and maturing. Um, and this is where the story gets actually quite sweet and profound to me. Um, and by that I mean the Jesus story. So human beings are here to bear the image of God in the world. And um, what that means as much as anything in the text is that we're actually called to steward the world the way that God would steward the world. Um, when ancient kings put statues around the ancient world, which is what this text is drawing on when it says that we bear the image, it was a way of saying like this, this place where the statue of the king is, is being governed by the king, right? So when human beings are called to bear the image of God, it's a way of saying that we are here to govern the world the way that God would govern the world, to manage the affairs of the world, to steward the raw materials of the world and the way that God would do that. And we have proven to be so bad at this in some ways, right? But the plot isn't lost. And, and this is one of the ways I understand the entire story of scripture and the entire story of Jesus, which is to say that like in Jesus, God has not given up on the story. He is reasserting our own vocation in the world through Christ and inviting us back to it with him as teacher. So let me show you, for example, in the book of Colossians. This is a text in the New Testament where the writer says, the son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In other words, like, hey, humanity, have you lost the plot a little bit? Are we having a hard time stewarding the world in a beautiful and redemptive way? Perhaps. But there is a teacher that has come. There is a life that has been lived. There is a presence in the world. His name is Jesus. And he is here to sort of recapitulate that whole idea that we are bearers of the sacred image and so we could actually learn these things from him, right? Um, and then the New Testament goes further and it brings it even all the way more full circle. So we're here to bear the image. We don't always bear the image well. Jesus bears the image, but then watch the move that the book of Romans makes in chapter eight. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning, Paul says. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. And after he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself and then, after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So, humanity, you are here to steward the world, and yet we have not. But Jesus has come to steward the world, not so that we just become passive observers who sit on our hands and just say, like, well, look at Jesus, he got it done. No, that's not the point of the story. The point is, like, to recapitulate our own vocation in the world with him, and so we have a, a teacher and a presence in Christ who I actually think is here to like grow us up and expand that consciousness and make us the kind of people who can do the work of justice without doubling down on a contradiction that defeats the whole thing. 
By the way, this whole idea that like Jesus is actually willing and able to lead us in that direction and grow us up, that's gonna drive us uh, through the months ahead. So starting right after Labor Day, we're gonna spend a while in the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna sit in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which in Matthew's Gospel is some of Jesus' core teachings, and we're gonna hang out there for a long time. Uh, we're just gonna work with this uh, profound and challenging and kind of mysterious text, and we're gonna work through it sort of line by line through September and October and November, and then we're gonna take a break for Advent and do the Advent thing, because Advent's great, and Christmas. And then after we get through Advent and Christmas, we're gonna do more Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's gonna take us all the way to Lent of next year. We're just gonna like, like ask Jesus over and over and over and over again, can you expand us? Can you elevate our consciousness? Can you grow us up? Can you evolve us? Can you help us be the kind of people who live the kind of lives that we are all longing for, but we keep getting lost trying to live them? That's the plan uh, around the corner here. And a lot of it will be driven by this heart, which is everyone an icon. How do we, how do we live that out? Like how do we live up to that when there's all these ways that we don't? We're gonna keep asking Jesus to help us do that.